Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business in the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people and the power of technology. I'm Ed Kless with my co-host and good friend Ron Baker, and on today's show, Ron, we have the great honor and privilege of interviewing Professor David D. Friedman. Um, Ron, uh, welcome to the the show. Good to talk to you. Yeah, you too, Uh, Ed. You know, there's an old joke that uh, that goes something like this. What's the difference between a libertarian and an anarchist? Have you ever heard this? No. And the answer is a few years. <laughs> <laughs> and I would and I would add to that uh, reading Machinery of Freedom, uh, just a, a, an outstanding book. And uh, and let me just quickly introduce uh, David Friedman is an academic economist. Currently employed as a law professor, and although he has never taken a course for credit in either of those fields, is the author of many books, including Law's Order, Hidden Order, The Economics of Everyday Life, Future Imperfect, and his anarcho-capitalist treatise, The Machinery of Freedom, which I just was mentioning, A Radical Guide to Capitalism. He has been involved in recreational medievalism via the Society for Creative Anachronism for over 30 years. And his interests include cooking from medieval cookbooks, making medieval jewelry, and telling medieval stories around a campfire. Uh, He has published two novels, Harold and Salamander, and he is currently working on a sequel to that second book, as well as a book on legal systems that are different from ours, uh, covering systems that range from Periclesian Athens to Imperial China to modern Amish and Gypsies. And I think I'm going to stop there with the introduction, Ron, because we do want to actually have an interview today. So (laughs) welcome to the soul of enterprise, Professor David Friedman. Glad to be here. Before we get into your work, uh, we would be a little bit remiss if it didn't ask you your thoughts regarding the events of this week. I know you're not an expert on current policy, but uh, I'll just ask this way. Were you sort of as surprised as as many of us were at the results? Yes, I was expecting Trump to lose. I figured that the best outcome was that Hillary gets the White House and the Republicans get the House and Senate because that I figured that both candidates were likely to do bad things and having divided government would reduce the number of bad things. So at this point, we have what I see as a high variance or a highly uncertain outcome that Trump with a Republican House and Senate could do very good things and he could do very bad things and very likely he'll do both, but we will see. Uh, that The thing is, in a sense, the... Interesting. Th- one of the interesting things about this election is that we really have no idea what Trump's own views are. That 
he pretty clearly was taking the views that he thought would get him the nomination in the election, and it turned out he was right. There was a widespread perception that he was crazy, but the basis for that perception was that he was doing crazy things which were obviously going to lose him the nomination and then the election, and since it turned out that he won those, that looks like crazy like a fox. So at this point, what we know is that he's a very able demagogue uh, and not much else. Uh, we'll have to see. And if he, I've read his list of what he wants to do in his 100 days, and half of it is great things and half of it is terrible things. And which ones he will, he, do, he will actually do, we don't yet know. But that's not my real interest. I mean, like everybody else, I've been observing this. It was certainly a much more interesting election than we expected it to be. Uh, and it will probably be a more interesting four years than we expected it to be. I would imagine so as well. In, in a way, it was ultimately the, the ultimate reality TV show. It really just turned into that. So, um, you know, there, there's been talk about uh, Barack Obama perhaps issuing a, a pardon for uh, Hillary Clinton in regard to the FBI investigation. And, um, but she's not been convicted of anything or even charged or with, with anything not, that I can find, right? Um, with anything, so I think it's rather unlikely. Right, right. But what I wanted to ask is, in the book that you're writing about legal systems other than our own, are there analogs for pardons or preemptive pardons or anything in the systems that you talked about? But actually, there's a bit involving pardoning that turned out to be very interesting that I came across quite recently and added to the book, that one of the chapters is on 18th century English criminal law, which I'd written about a long time ago, but know, know more about now. And that was a system that on paper was just like our system. The only small difference was that there were no police and no public prosecutors. So you had criminal law that was privately prosecuted. And one of the questions that raises is why they did it that way. They certainly knew about the possibility of having police and public prosecutors because the French at the same time had that system. And I think one of the reasons was that the English were seriously worried about government power. That the 17th century in England consists of two civil wars, a military dictatorship for 14 years, and a couple of coups, usually labeled something else. And I think it occurred to people under those circumstances that if the king controlled the criminal prosecution, the king's friends could get away with murder. And I think that's an issue for us as well. That, as I think we all know, not very long ago, the director of national intelligence deliberately lied under oath in congressional testimony. That's a felony called uh, perjury. And there is no chance he will ever be uh, charged, tried, and convicted of that, of that felony. And I can think of other modern examples. But the neat bit that I came across reading about 18th century English history was that there was a point at which uh, a... <clears throat> Radical uh, politician uh, and other things who uh, most of you probably haven't heard of uh, was in prison in London and there was a big demonstration in his favor outside of the prison and the authorities got worried and the troops opened fire on the crowd and killed several people. And Wilkes' supporters proceeded to charge several soldiers and the justice of the peace who had given the order to fire with murder. And they were tried for murder. And so that's a rather striking case where the fact that prosecution wasn't controlled by the state meant that people who did things the state liked could still get tried. Now, the king still had the power to pardon. 
But there was another case in which some people were convicted of murder and then pardoned for what were pretty clearly corrupt reasons, in which, again, Wilkes supporters, this is the Wilkes who John Wilkes Booth was named after, very interesting 18th century character, hmm. but his supporters uh, in, engaged in an, a legal procedure that nobody did anymore but was still on the books, which was a private criminal case where if you convicted somebody, the king couldn't pardon him any more than the king could cancel the verdict of a tort case. They didn't succeed, as it turned out. But it was a case where in the 18th century, you had people critical of the government who were seriously worried about the fact that the crown could pardon people, even people who clearly committed murder, and were trying to do something about it. So that's actually a very old issue. So, do do you th- is the the pardon really just a, a vestige of of that uh, the, the the king's pardon, or and wouldn't it make sense for us to transfer that power to Congress? I don't know. I've always thought that that was I, odd. I don't know. Yeah, but it, on the other hand, when it's done, it tends to be done on substantial numbers of people. It'll be an awful lot of work for Congress. I don't have a strong opinion uh, on on, yeah. on that. I see. I think it's quite unlikely that Obama is going to pardon Clinton for things she hasn't been charged with, uh, but, and I don't even know if he could pardon in advance, uh, or, you know, he could pardon the director of national intelligence for, for felony, I suppose, if he was convicted, uh, but in any case, it's, that, that's not, I think, one of the more interesting issues that's going to come, come up. The, the, the real issue, in a sense, is going to discover what kind of a president Trump is, uh, whether, if he turns out to be a good president, a lot of people are going to have to eat crow, hmm. uh, if he turns out to be a successful president, he may mess up the Republican Party because the Republican Party may decide that being against free trade is a winning move, uh, since it was for him, which would be unfortunate. But, mm-hmm. but that's, as they, my main interests are not really in current no. politics at all. Uh, they're in, among other things, going back to this 18th century English case, so one of the things that did come, the book I'm writing is about legal systems very different from ours. Uh, it's based on a seminar I taught, for, taught for many, I taught for many years. And the basic idea is that all human societies face about the same problems. They solve them in an interesting variety of different ways. And they're all grown-ups. We should think of all of them as what reasonable people did, did or didn't work, what can we learn from it. Uh, and one of the things that I learned from it, which was actually relevant to, my, to the book of mine you mentioned earlier, Machinery, is that I was in a sense reinventing the wheel. That there is a legal system which has existed in many times and places, which is non-governmental and decentralized, in which the basic rule is that if you wrong me, I threaten to harm you unless you compensate me. Uh, that's the legal system that ours was built on top of because uh, Anglo-American common law grew out of Anglo-Saxon law, which was a basically, until the last century or so of Anglo-Saxon rule, was privately prosecuted. It's the legal system that pretty clearly both Jewish and Islamic law grew out of, and it's probably the legal system that Roman law grew out of. And so I found it interesting to look at, in order for that decentralized system to work, what conditions it has to meet. And the first condition is that my threat to harm you has to be believable when you have really wronged me and not believable when you haven't. Otherwise, it's just extortion. And that's the pattern that I think of as right makes might. There's got to be some mechanism such that I can get away with getting revenge against you if you've really wronged me and not if you haven't. 
and different societies do it in different ways. Uh, the privately enforced system that I first came across a long time ago was that of Saga period Iceland, Iceland from about 930 AD for roughly 300 years. And that was a system where they had laws, they had courts, but all enforcement was private. So you wrong me in some way, I sue you, the court gives a verdict, you do or don't follow the verdict. If you don't follow the verdict, the court declares you're an outlaw, it's now legal to kill you. It's now, you, people who defend you can now be sued for doing so. So that was a system in which the mechanism by which right made might was the court system. Because once, every, once all our neighbors knew that you were the bad guy, that you were the one who the court was said was in the wrong, now my friends back me and your friends don't back you. That lasted for about a third of a millennium, longer than our system has lasted. It eventually broke down, as most systems do. Uh, there's a much more informal version of that, which is running at the moment. And that's the legal system of the Roman child gypsies, which are the largest gypsy group in Britain at the present. And their system I like to describe as a primitive version of the Icelandic system of a thousand years earlier, in which if you have wronged me, I threaten to beat you up. And you and I both know that if you really have wronged me in terms of the views of our society, my friends will back me and your friends won't back you. So you either compensate me or lose town or leave town. And that's a very simple version of the same system. And what I was describing in my first book, which I thought I was inventing, was sort of a modern, uh, much more developed version of that system in which you had private firms that sold their customers the service of protecting their rights and settling their disputes. The private firms in principle could use violence against each other, but they almost never did because that's too expensive. And instead, the private firms agreed in advance on private courts that would settle their disputes. And they obeyed those private courts because everybody knew that if when the case went against my client, my customer, I refused to go along, then next time when it went against your customer, you wouldn't go along. We'd have to fight each other, and that would be very expensive, and we'd lose market share to more peaceable firms selling the same service. So part of the fun thing that came out of investigating lots of weird legal systems, I should say the traditional northern Somali system is another one of these systems, which functioned pretty well until people tried to put a state on top of it. Uh, and one of the things I learned from that uh, was that really the stuff I'd been inventing in theory was a fancier version of something that had existed in practice in quite a lot of different places. So wow. that, that's a, one of the things that coming out of the book. If, if people are curious, I've webbed the draft of the book. My web page is daviddfriedman.com. And so you can read uh, the current version of my account of a whole bunch of interesting, weird legal systems. Uh, you can also read the second edition of Machinery of Freedom is up there for free as a PDF for the third edition, I think, is a, a Kindle for about $3 or so on Amazon. Uh, and you can read a number of my other books. That you know, I write books mainly to be read, not mainly as a source of income. And therefore, most of the time when I can, I, I web my books so anybody who wants can read them. Excellent. And we will put all of those up in our show notes and pass it along to our uh, the, the listeners and the people in our community. But right now, we've got to pay our bills. So we're up against our first break. But we do want to remind you that you can get a hold of Ron or myself at asktsoe at verisage.com. And the webpage that where we will have the show notes for our conversation with Professor Friedman is thesoldofenterprise.com. But right now, we want to hear from our sponsor, Leading Results. 
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Is your website just a brochure or is it your best salesperson? If your site is not the best lead generation tool you have, we should talk. We are leading results. We build websites and marketing programs that impact your bottom line. Using HubSpot or WordPress, we'll create a website and supporting marketing program that gets your business found, converts web visitors to leads, and provides clear tracking on what is and is not working. Learn about our team and approach to your success. Visit leadingresults.com slash TSOE to find out more. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have, but have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're honored to be here with Professor David Friedman. Uh, Professor, I just have to thank you. Your book, Hidden Order, literally launched my career. Um, you, you and your father taught me price theory, and you've just had such a profound influence on my thinking. I'm just honored to be um, have you on the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Um, in Hidden Order, The Economics of Everyday Life, 1996, in fact, the foreword was written by Steve Landsberg, and, and you two are just two of my favorite all-time authors on economics, you make it really exciting and, and very thought-provocative. You talk about the assumption of rationality, and you admit that it's false, but it's useful because it describes our actions, not our thoughts. And you, you said roughly, I think, somewhere, maybe it was your textbook where you said this part, but you said, you know, if we can assume people are rational, we could perhaps predict about one half of their behavior. Not perfect, but, you know, if I could do that well at the track, I'd be a rich man. Why, which I love, why do, why do you hold on to the assumption of rationality? Why is it useful? The, the argument that I made, which I think was clearly correct then and may or may not still be correct, is that we don't have a good theory of irrationality. That the actual behavior we observe is in part rational. The fact that something is in your self-interest makes it more likely you'll do it. But we know that we all make mistakes, that the example I usually give is that I have observed that even though I'm usually overweight, if there is a bowl of potato chips within arm's reach, it mysteriously empties itself. And that's, in a sense, irrational behavior. Uh, but it's irrational behavior that I can deal with by rationally avoiding having bowls of potato chips sitting next to me, which I mostly do. Uh, and if our behavior is largely rational, then that gives a predictable element of the behavior. 
in many contexts, the irrationalities average out because what we're interested in is not what one person does, but the effect of a bunch of people, and some of them are irrational in one direction and some in another. Uh, the only sense in which I would qualify that argument now is that there was a very interesting book that was published after mine called Thinking Fast and Slow by Kahneman, who is a psychologist who got a Nobel Prize in economics and I think deserved it. And that was an analysis with a good deal of evidence of what you might call irrationality. It's a little unclear whether you should say he's explaining irrationality or giving a fancier version of rationality. Because Kahneman's basic argument is that we have two different ways of analyzing data, one of which he calls the fast mind and one the slow mind. And the slow mind is ordinary rational thought. And the fast mind is all the stuff we do automatically in the background. So that when I look at somebody, what I'm seeing is not a pattern of different colors on my retina, but a human face. And I recognize that certain expressions mean certain things. I recognize voices. I'm at no point am I explicitly saying, aha, it's dark there and light there, it must be Mary. Uh, that's all background processing. And in order to do that that fast, you've got to use a lot of rules of thumb. And so what Kahneman has done is to work out what some of the rules of thumb are that we use for processing some information. When they give you mistakes, and part of the fun of the book is that he makes you an experimental subject. Because he gives you puzzles where what happens when you read his puzzle is either you get the wrong answer or your first instinct is the wrong answer and you catch yourself and then work out the right answer. Uh, because they're all puzzles designed so that the rules of thumb that the fast mind uses uh, give the wrong answer. So that's very interesting. But in a sense, that's a fancier version of rationality because an economist would say, look, you've got limited resources. You can't do everything with a slow mind because there are only 24 hours in a day. And therefore, it is rational to have the most important things handled by explicit reason and everything else done by, by, the, by the fast mind. So it's a very interesting book. I haven't yet seen any good economics coming out of it. It's not that it can't be done, but at least what I've seen, I haven't seen anything where I really know more as a result. And I have a suggestion for anybody who wants to become a famous economist, and that is that the place you ought to be using uh, this kind of economics, behavioral economics, is not in price theory, but in macroeconomics, in the attempt to explain things like business cycles and unemployment and the Great Depression and so forth. That's, in general, a very important part of economics, which economists have not done very well. I like to say that a course in macro is a tour of either a cemetery or a construction site, uh, because we don't really have an adequate macro theory. I don't do macro. I'm just an observer of the field. Uh, but if I look at macro, it looks to me as though all the different macro theories involve lots of people making the same mistake over and over again. And what the mistake is depends on the particular theory. Well, what Kahneman has offered is an explanation of why in certain contexts lots of people make the same mistake. And therefore, I propose to some, any very smart people who are listening to this and who want to make a career in economics to try to see if you can build a macro theory whose basis is behavioral economics. That, that's my, I, I like to say that when you're young, you're afraid people will steal your ideas, and when you're old, you're afraid they won't. So this <laughs> is an idea of mine that I'm never going to follow up because it isn't the kind of work I do, and I'm hoping somebody else will steal.
That's a fascinating perspective uh, that behavioral economics might have more insight into macro than than micro. So, so you haven't seen any real big leaps forward from all no. the behavioral. I, I read nudges, and one of the authors is a uh, ex colleague of mine, Cass Sunstein, who is a bright and interesting guy. Uh, but I didn't think that after reading nudges, I really understood much that I didn't understand before, whereas after reading Kahneman's book, Fast and Slow, I did. So, so I, I have, now it's not like it's something I pay a lot of attention to, but I haven't noticed anything where I would say, aha, here is a puzzle, which we couldn't understand before and we can understand now because of behavioral economics. That's not quite right. I've got such a puzzle, but it's, it's either mine or Kahneman's. I'm not sure if he makes it because there's a very old economic puzzle. It goes back to Adam Smith, which we refer to as the lottery insurance puzzle. Why is it that the same people buy lottery tickets, which imply that they like uncertainty, would rather have one chance in a million of a million dollars than have one dollar, and insurance policies, which imply they're trying to avoid uncertainty? And I think you can use Kahneman's idea to ex- ideas to explain that, but I'm, that's the only case I can think of. Mm. In Hidden Order, you talk a lot about price and value and cost, and you also talk a lot about price discrimination. And maybe it's partly the word, but even when you explain the concept of price discrimination to the average person or business person, you know, charging different prices to different customers based on ability and willingness to pay, they kind of recoil. What are the welfare benefits from price discrimination, Professor Friedman? Yeah, well, as I go through, I think in the book, price discrimination can have either net positive or net negative effects. And the positive effect is suppose I've got a product. Uh, let me take my own case for a moment. Uh, I do public speaking. I get paid for doing public speaking. Uh, suppose that there is a group that doesn't have much money, would like me to give a talk, is willing to pay my expenses but not any honorarium, and just consists of people I'd like to talk to. If I charge them my standard honorarium, I won't speak to them. If I say, all right, I'll do this one for free because I've got a free day. It's not a big problem for me, and I'd like to talk to this group of people, maybe spread some ideas. I will benefit, and they will benefit. And that's one special case of the general argument. Uh, It doesn't work in a perfectly competitive market because in a perfectly competitive market, the price I'm selling at is also my cost, so it's the lowest price I can afford to sell at. But I'm not in a competitive market. I'm a monopolist. I'm the only person who gives the kind of talks I give, so other people are not perfectly substitutes for me. Uh, and in any context like that, uh, the price discrimination means that you can make the product available at a low cost to people who are willing to pay more than it costs you to produce without having to give up the money you would be making at a higher price to people who are willing to pay a higher price. Uh, So in a sense, the argument against price discrimination implicitly assumes that you somehow have a right to get the lowest possible price. But if you've got something which is worth $1,000 to you and $2,000 to me, I don't see any particular moral reason why I've got, when you sell it to me, there's a $1,000 gain. I'm getting something that costs you $2,000 or worth $2,000 to me. I don't see any moral reason why one of us is entitled to that gain and not the other end. You know, if, if you're clever enough to get me to pay $1,900 for it, so you get a $900 of the gain from the transaction and I get $100, well, I'd rather get more, but I'm still benefiting and you're still benefiting. 
so price now price discrimination for economists is mostly the way we explain puzzles that don't seem to make any sense in other ways. That when you're right. trying to say why is why does the business do X, Y, or Z? Why are hard copy why are hard covers so much more expensive than paperbacks? And I don't think it's production cost. And I think the answer is that the hardcover is going to the person who really likes this author, wants to read the book a hundred times, or maybe the hardcover comes out first, so it's going to the people who value the book a lot. My first novel was published by Bain Books, which is a publisher mainly of science fiction and fantasy, and it was run at the time by Jim Bain, unfortunately he's no longer alive, who was a very entrepreneurial, original kind of guy. He was one of the few publishers, I think, who saw the internet as an opportunity rather than a threat. And one of the things that he did was that he's bringing out a book, uh, say, that's going to come out in March. In January, he makes available the preliminary version of the book, which is going to go out to book reviewers. I forget the technical name for it, but it's a standard that you have a sort of not quite finished version of a book you want the book reviews to come out when the book comes out, so you send the, it's advanced review copy, that's what they call it, an ARC, an ARC. So what Jim Bain did was to say, well, we've got this book coming out in March. Customers can have the ARC, as this was a, uh, some kind of, uh, of, of online, uh, I, I don't, I don't well, they may have produced physical ARCs as well, but at least some of them were, were ebook ARCs. The publishers can have the, 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 the fans can have the ARC too, and the earlier you get it, the more you pay. So we've got a book which, when it's published, you can have the final edition for $5. But if you're a real enthusiast who'd like to know what's the next thing in the series before all your friends do, 15 bucks in January, right. 10 bucks in February. <laughs> and that was a very clever idea. I don't see anything wicked about it. Uh, and it was a result of making it easier for Jim to publish books, including mine. Sure, sure. No, that makes it. When you uh, wrote that in Hidden Order, I, that blew my mind that the paperback cost and the hardcover cost were roughly the same, and therefore it was a very clever price discrimination technique. But, Professor, unfortunately, the time is just flying as I knew it would, and we're up against our next break. So, folks, if you'd like to uh, contact Ed or myself, you can do so at asktsoe at barrisage.com, and we will have full show notes with our interview with Professor Friedman, links to his website and his books at the soul of enterprise.com and now we need to take a break the future of online tv is here view exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else visit voiceamerica.tv today have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Solemn Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. The Voice America Live Events page is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events 
to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network. tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit us on the web at the soul of you can also chat with us on twitter using hashtag ask tsoe now back to the soul of enterprise his books include laws order hidden order future imperfect and of course the machinery of freedom we are talking today with professor david friedman uh Professor Friedman, I want to talk to you a little bit about inequality, and the you know the market is often blamed for inequality, but you have pointed out, and in fact, that government is often more unequal in what it provides to the poor. Would you um, elaborate on that and perhaps give us an example or two? Well, the obvious examples in our society would be schooling and police protection. That if you think about what are the ways in which poor people in our society are substantially worse off than average people. And I think probably the two clearest ones are that they typically live in much high, higher crime areas and they typically uh, get, have their kids go to much worse schools. And uh, I remember an online discussion uh, of the schooling case a long time ago where somebody who I think had been a public school teacher was describing what she thought was happening. And that was that you've got a public school, state public school system, which has schools in well-off suburbs, and it's got schools in poor inner city. And it's got teachers, some of whom are good and some of whom are pretty bad. And if you put a bad teacher in the well-off suburb, the parents are paying attention. The parents are active, energetic people who are in a position to put some political pressure on the school. So that's a bad idea for the school. Put the the poor teacher in the inner city, no problem. And so the result is that even if you spend the same number of dollars on each school, in practice, it's going to be politically in the interest of the people running the schools to put the good teachers in the uh, suburbs and the poor teachers in the inner city. Uh, but the pattern, I think, is a pretty, is a pretty general one, that, that part of the advantage of the market is that you get to decide what's important to you. So if you have an income of $80,000 a year and I have an income of 40000 the result is not that you buy twice as much of everything. The result is that you and I buy about the same number of calories of food because getting enough food to eat is really important. Uh, you and I probably both buy enough home heating so we don't freeze in the, in the winter. And then I buy a car that is barely adequate, and you buy a really nice car, and I have a house that's sort of run down and has enough room for me, but not a lot of extra room for parties, and you've got a nice big house, and so forth and so on. So that one of the virtues of market society is that given that there's going to be inequality, and there's inequality 
both in the political and the market world. But in the market world, people get to decide for the limited resources they have what is it they want to spend it on, and thus you tend to be more equal in the things that are more important to people, less equal in the things that are less important. And uh, I want to, to – thanks for that. That's a great uh, example of it. Uh, I do want to shift gears a little bit uh, on, on you here. And you've written for a long time about uh, public key encryption and, and its its future on, on changing how it is that we, we do things. Is, is, is the blockchain and perhaps Bitcoin the, the, the coming manifestation of that? Or, or, do, or do you see those as, as, as not really things that are going to have an impact? Yeah. Well, what I have written about and we don't yet have is fully anonymous eCash. The technology for doing fully anonymous eCash has been known for quite a long time. It's due to a Dutch cryptographer who invented it, I think, by now 30 or 40 years ago. And it takes advantage of public key encryption. The problem is that his version of an anonymous cash, there had to be a bank somewhere. And... You basically, anonymous eCash meant that I could transfer money from me to you by sending you a message. You didn't have to know who I was, and I didn't have to know who you were, and the bank didn't have to know who either of us was. And we know how to do that, but it hasn't happened. And I think the reason it hasn't happened is that for that to happen, you need a bank people trust in some respectable country. Most respectable countries, including the U.S., don't want it to happen. Because if you have anonymous e-cash, money laundering laws become unenforceable. And therefore, the banks didn't come into existence that were doing it. Uh, Bitcoin, the beauty of Bitcoin is that it doesn't require an issuer. It doesn't require a bank. It can be done even if every government in the world is against it and has been done. Uh, On the other hand, Bitcoin is not an anonymous system. Uh, Bitcoin, indeed, in a sense, is the least anonymous money that has ever existed. Because the way Bitcoin is set up Every transaction is public information to everybody using Bitcoins. Now, it's public information of the form money was transferred from account 793 to account 1273. It doesn't have the names of the people, only of their accounts. But with a little bit of effort, if somebody wants to figure out who those accounts are, it isn't all that hard. You make a payment to the person you suspect the account belongs to in bitcoins. You then watch to see what account that money went to, and that tells you if that's really his account. So to make Bitcoin anonymous, you need to add to Bitcoin additional stuff. And I'm told there are people trying to do that, and I haven't really followed that in very close detail. But Bitcoin by itself, it's a lovely system. It's an ingenious system. I'm all in favor of it, but it does not by itself provide us with a fully anonymous e-cash, which would be a nice thing to have. That One of the things I've been discussing for a long time, discussed in Future Imperfect and before that in, in articles, is what I think of as a world of strong privacy. That you have the technological possibility for a world where all online activity is protected by encryption in such a way that you and I can have a conversation which no third party, including the National Security Agency or the FBI, can listen to. You and I can engage in an online transaction which no third party can monitor. And technologically, that's possible. You need to set up the institutions to do it. And one of those institutions that you would need would be a fully anonymous uh, form of e-cash. And that may eventually come out of Bitcoin or come out of one of the other blockchain uh, monies people are trying to create, but I don't think we have it yet. 
Interesting. Well, I have, uh, have a question that, that was sent to us by a, a listener of ours, and he's also a, a big fan of yours. And he just wanted to know, and this is uh, Jay, he says, um, uh, who or what led you to your uh, your anarchism? Was there was there a particular sh- time that you made a shift yeah. towards it, or yeah. was this just something that evolved with you over time? I think that the insofar as there was a specific thing, it was a science fiction novel by Robert Heinlein called The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. And the reason that changed my view was that up to that point, my view was that for almost everything, the free market was the right answer, but that the framework of law and law enforcement had to be provided by the government. And that was not a very satisfactory solution because the same arguments that suggested that governments would do a bad job making cars also suggested that governments would do a bad job making laws. But if there was no alternative, it was the best you could do. And what Heinlein demonstrated, I think, in that book, what he gave me was a plausible account of a society in which law and law enforcement were entirely private. It wasn't my society. It was a fictional society on the moon. But as far as I could tell, it was internally consistent that if the facts he had described had happened, the society would have worked about the way he described. And a theorem is refuted by a single counterexample. So once I I know that it is possible to have a system in which law enforcement are a part of the market rather than something imposed from outside, it can't be that it's impossible. And if it's not impossible, it was worth thinking about what the equivalent would be for my, the world that I actually lived in. So Machinery of Freedom really, can, part three of Machinery, the book covers several other things. But part three is a sketch of what a society with private property and without government in the modern world might look like. And that really was inspired by Heinlein persuading me that it wasn't logically impossible to have such a society. So that would be the clearest the clearest division there. And as I mentioned earlier in this show, much later I discovered that there were in fact real world societies, ones much simpler than ours, which had in fact done the equivalent of what I'm describing. In particular, it turns out if you look at uh, the legal, the traditional legal system in Somaliland, which is the northern half of Somalia, that that really looks rather like my system in a society with a lot less division of labor. Uh, because you actually have groups uh, formed by explicit contract who are providing for their members the enforcement of their rights. Uh, And anyway, read my chapter on Somalia in the webbed draft of my book, and you will see what that looks like. It's really quite neat. Outstanding. We will definitely put a link uh, up to that book so that our listeners and those who follow our website can take a look at it as well. But right now we're uh, up against our last break. We want to remind you that you can visit thesoulofenterprise.com. And if you go out to our live events page, you'll see where Ron or myself are speaking. We also now have a show archive where you can look at all, I believe, 119 episodes of The Soul of Enterprise are archived and for your listening pleasure. But right now we want to hear from our sponsor and my employer, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Four new employees, a 20% increase in revenue. Being one of the 9 million women business owners in the U.S., 
These are your proudest numbers, your landmarks of growth and success. Sage helps you achieve business milestones with cloud and software solutions that lead to deeper financial insights. Believe in your numbers. See what Sage can do for your business. Visit believeinyournumbers.com today. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit us on the web at the soul of you can also chat with us on twitter using hashtag ask tsoe now back to the soul of enterprise well welcome back everybody we're thrilled to be here with professor david friedman and professor in your book in your 2000 book laws order you talk a little bit about the death penalty, and you say that one argument against it is it's re- irreversible, but then you point out something I think is a really excellent point. You say, so is prison time, right? And if and prison has a higher pr- probability, uh, prison time needs to have, uh, uh, you know, to get the same deterrent effect, you, you, uh, you're going to probably make proportionately more mistakes given people prison also, time. Also, mistakes are very rarely corrected. Uh, you know, we've had some corrected because of a new technology with DNA, but that's sort of the exception, not the rule. Uh, so, no, I think the the strongest argument against the death penalty, which doesn't really apply at the mo- at the moment, but applies in a lot of past societies, is that it's too cheap. That that one of the things you have to worry about in a criminal system is that there are costs and benefits. Uh, often, the people who uh, make the decisions uh, are not bearing the costs themselves. And therefore, uh, if there's a very inexpensive way of punishing people, you may have a temptation to overpunish. And there's a famous historical story for this, which probably isn't true, but it's a good story anyway. And that is that, as you may know, there was a heresy in southern France, mostly, called the Albigensian heresy in the Middle Ages. And there was a crusade against it, largely by northern French nobles uh, acting at the request of the Pope, essentially. And the story is told, as they say, it's probably not a true story, but it might be, that at one point, one of the cities the Albigensians were holding was taken by the, the Crusaders. And the leader of the army asked the Pope's representative, how do we tell which of the people in this city are heretical Albigensians and which are good Catholics who just happen to live here? And the Pope, and the answer was, kill them all. God will know his own. All right. It's a, it, it, there's no good evidence that he really said it, but it's still a wonderful line. Because if right. you really believe in that system, if you kill the, the wrong person, that's all right, he'll go to heaven. Why is that a problem? And in a sense, if you think about a situation where the death penalty is easy to, implod, to impose, and the people who might be killed, even though they're innocent, don't have much political muscle, 
there's going to be a temptation to overimpose it. Uh, right. And that goes along with a, a article I published uh, a long time ago in a journal called The Inefficiency of Efficient Punishment, which is that an efficient punishment is something like a fine where what the criminal loses, somebody else gets. And that's a nice thing in one sense because it means the net cost to the society is much less. Whereas if you execute somebody, he loses a life and nobody gets it. And if you imprison someone, he loses his freedom and someone else has to pay for the prison. The only problem with an efficient punishment is it means there's somebody with an incentive to punish you whether or not you're guilty. Because there's somebody who's getting what you're losing. And that's a real problem. And death penalty isn't quite that bad because nobody's actually getting it unless we imagine is what Larry Niven, science fiction author, imagines a future where when you execute somebody's organs forfeit and then you have a real problem with pressure to execute people more because people want organs for transplants. But even without that, the death penalty in a system where it's easy to impose it means that punishing people is pretty cheap and that could be very dangerous. That's the argument against. And there are arguments for as well. There's seems likely that the death penalty deters people, though that's been a long statistical controversy uh, and obviously if even if you kill one innocent person by giving the death penalty too easily maybe you're saving the lives of 10 innocent people who would be victims if you didn't deter it that's a that's a very complicated question right you also have a phd in physics and so i wanted to ask you what is your view of global warming my view is that Global temperatures have trended up for the last century, that the most likely explanation is human activity, especially producing carbon dioxide, but that there is no good reason to believe the change is bad, that warming is going to have both good effects and bad effects. Both of them are quite uncertain, partly because the mm -hmm. details of climate science, science are uncertain, we don't know how much warming we're going to get, and partly because the future is uncertain. We therefore don't know whether the net effect of warming is going to be good or bad. And I find it striking that the people who think of themselves on the left are, in this case, the extreme conservatives. That is, they are people who say it's changed, so it must be bad. And if you really think about it, humans currently prosper across a very wide range of climates. So it's not as if making things a little warmer is obviously bad. The way I like to put it is that if you have about as much warming as the IPCC's pessimistic estimate is for 2100, that means that Minnesota becomes about as warm as Iowa is now. People manage to live in Iowa just fine. Uh, so I don't think there's any presumption that warming on this scale is a bad thing. It's going to have some bad effects. It's going to result in hotter summers. So some people will die from heat waves. On the other hand, it's going to result in milder winters, and on a global scale, scale, cold kills many more people than heat, so you're going to have more people dying in the summer and fewer dying in the winter. Uh, you're going to have, uh, in some places, more rain, in some places less. You're going to lose a little bit of land due to sea level rise, but that's a pretty small effect if you look at the size. You're going to gain land because the areas people can live in are going to move towards the poles. As things get warmer, places like Siberia and Canada and Alaska become more useful for humans because they're not as cold. So you're really going to have good, good effects and bad effects. And I don't see any good reason to think the net effects will be bad, even though that's the current orthodoxy. Right. It seems like people only add up the costs and don't look at the benefits. Yeah. 
<laughs> I, I first got into this in the issue of population about 40 years ago when I wrote a piece for the Population Council in which I tried to add up the positive and negative effects on other people of having one more child. And I concluded that I could not tell whether the sum was positive or negative. It was just too much uncertainty out there. Right. And that was a very similar situation because then as now, the sort of everybody was saying, look, all the scientists tell us X is true. And then in that case, that population is a terrible threat. Turned out it wasn't true in that case. And I don't see any good reason to expect it to be true in this case, but we'll see. When you look at the population statistics, uh, birth rates around some of the uh, more developed nations and their below replacement level, what, are you concerned about a declining population at all? I think it is likely that some, especially European countries, maybe Japan, will have declining population. Uh, the U.S. isn't going to unless we shut down immigration pretty severely, which I suppose Trump might do, but I hope he won't because I think immigration is on the whole good for this country, has been for a long time. Uh, but uh, there will be effects in countries where the population declines and they don't let in immigrants. Uh, there will be good effects and bad effects that, on the one hand, wages will tend to get higher and rents will tend to get lower because there's the same amount of land is still out there and the houses are sitting there with fewer people. Uh, on the other hand, you're gonna, as, as you have the change, the population gets older, so you'll have retired people who are being supported by a smaller number of non-retired people, which is going to be a problem in some of those countries. Uh, so it is one of the ways in which the world uh, may well change. Right. Well, Professor, thank you so much. I'm going to turn you back over to Ed, but I just wanted to say thank you and, and also that I had the privilege once of meeting uh, your parents, and that was a big honor for me because he they've also had a big influence on my worldview. So just on thank my- you for... <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> thank you for appearing on the Sullivan Enterprise. Ed, take it away. Okay, and we've got about uh, one and a half minutes left, Professor. I just wanted to ask you, I, I recently read that three times as many disagreements each year among eBay traders are resolved using their online dispute resolution system than, than there are lawsuits filed in the entire United States court system. Might this be an example of some of the ideas of machinery and of freedom being implemented? Yes, it is. One of the... the in one of my chapters, I written something over 40 years ago, I discussed the court system as a government activity that people could make money by replacing. And I think eBay is a fairly nice example uh, where they've set up mechanisms for doing the same job the courts are doing, and they work a whole lot better. So, so yes, that's one which I think I can claim to have called. Some people have also argued that I predicted Uber because I have a chapter on jitneys, and what I predicted actually was describing something that had happened in the past and I hope would happen in the future. wasn't exactly the Uber model, but it was along somewhat similar lines. Well, that's just uh, amazing stuff. Uh, last thing I want to just mention to you is I, I was very struck by the, the chapter in your latest edition of Machinery and Freedom in which you talk about G.K. Chesterton uh, and, and talk about him being underrated by today's standards. And one of your lines, I think, is something about that you're, you're enthralled with Catholicism without God. Um, and I just wanted to let you know that I've kind of looked, looked at it the other way. I view myself as an atheist with God. <laughs> Right. That would be an interesting conversation, but not in the few seconds we have left. (laughs) That's absolutely correct. (laughs) Well, again, let me just thank you once more so much for being a guest on The Soul of Enterprise. We've been looking forward to this day to have you on since we first contacted you. And and, uh, as as expected, you've been extraordinarily gracious with us. So thanks again for being a guest.
It was fun for me, too. Thank you. All right, Ron. What do we got right, coming man. up next week? Uh, we have Free Rider Friday because we're uh, dark the next week for Thanksgiving. Or not dark, but a, a rerun is going to go on uh, gotcha. for the Thanksgiving week. So, Free Rider Friday. All right. Well, I'll see you in 167 hours, Ron. All right. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, business in the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people and the power of technology. Join us next week on Friday at 4 p.m. In the meantime, feel free to visit us at www.thesoulofenterprise.com. Mm-hmm.